Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hello and welcome to The Rest is History, the first of this extraordinary epic series of World Cup-themed podcasts that we'll be doing. And when I say World Cup, Tom, uh, we are doing a podcast for every country that has qualified for the FIFA Football World Cup uh, taking place in Qatar. But none of the podcasts are going to be about football or indeed really about sport. They are aspects of a particular country's history, aren't they? With one exception, which is today's podcast. Because today we are kicking off with the host nation, aren't we? Yes. So today, uniquely among our 32 episodes, uh, we're going to give the entire history of a country, namely Qatar. And Dominic, I, th- I guess, I mean, if you look, looking back at previous countries that have hosted it, so that would be what, Russia, Brazil, then Russia, France, Brazil, South Africa, um, yeah, South- so, so these Germany, are- France, yeah. These are countries that have a very kind of complex, fascinating history, um, and they tend to be global players, uh, inevitably, because to host the World Cup, you have to be wealthy, and generally you have to have a large population. Um, Qatar is, I would say, unique among the countries that has hosted the World Cup in that it is incredibly small. So it's very, very small physically. If you imagine the, the Persian Gulf, or I guess I should call it the Arabian Gulf, <laughs> people get very cross depending on where they come from. But let's say they call it the Gulf. Qatar is kind of like, the. if you imagine the Gulf as being like a throat, Qatar is kind of like the epiglottis sticking up. Yeah. It's a, it's a, a, a tiny it's a kind of peninsula sticking up. Peninsula, yes. Next to the island of Bahrain. And its, its population is equivalent to the population of Hull. So it's just over 300,000. Um, there, there are just under two and a half million expatriates, but there are, you know, just over 300,000 Qataris. And for most of its history, yeah. it, it, it has existed to be dominated by, by other great powers. Uh, it, it has not been one of the great centers of the world. It's not been one of the great motors of world history. I think it would be That's fair. That's probably to fair, say. isn't it, Tom? I mean, even a Qatari historian would surely agree yeah, with that. I, I think so. Uh, and obviously, there are very distinctive reasons why Qatar now is such a significant player uh, geopolitically. Right. So it's it's the world's largest exporter of liquefied natural gas, which at the moment, of course, is absolutely the centre of, of uh, world politics. Um, but it's also it's not just the fact that it has these large. Um, I mean, the, the world's largest reserve of of, uh, of liquefied natural gas. It's also what it has done with its money. Yeah. And it's such a fascinating story, really fascinating story. So very much the focus of this uh, canter through the history of Qatar will be, will be the, the, the focus will be very much the last few decades, because that's really when Qatar has become a geopolitical player. But the backstory is interesting as well, because... Um, Qatar is well. <laughs> I I saw um, an advert for it. The, the tourist industry said it's it's desert and sea, um, right? Which is basically what you know that it's sand and and salt water. So it's that's basically why the population traditionally has been quite small because neither are naturally hospitable. But having yeah. said that, the the sea uh, for for hunter gatherers has always been a resource because it provides um, 
uh, seafood. And in fact, particularly Bahrain, but also Qatar as well, is famous throughout antiquity, right the way up into the 20th century for its pearls. So it did have kind of food resources to offer hunter-gatherers as they moved out of Africa, so modern humans spreading eastwards uh, ac- across Asia. So populations were there from very, very early on. Um, yeah. And it, Qatar was really created rather in the way that um, the island of, of Great Britain was created by the rise in sea level uh, about 8,000 years ago. So the same inundate process of inundation that, that drowned the Dogger Bank, it, um, it, it, it flooded vast uh, areas of of land in, around what becomes the Gulf, and yeah. Qatar it kind of emerges from the this Atlantean deluge, um, and uh, it becomes a peninsula. You know, it becomes a peninsula, and therefore it becomes a refuge for people who are fleeing the inundation. So that is the very very deep backstory. Uh, but basically, from that point on, if there is a local superpower. Qatar comes under its influence. So it comes yeah. under the influence of the Assyrians, of the Babylonians, of the Persians, um, and then under the, the armies of Alexander the Great, it comes under the Seleucids. And one interesting detail that comes from Herodotus, and I'm very happy that our uh, World Cup um, series, is, there's a chance for a mention of Herodotus, because he, he reports an intriguing fact, which is that the Phoenicians who settle what's now Lebanon and who will go on to found Carthage, which will be the subject of a, a later episode that we do. Um, he says that they came from this region. They came from the region of Qatar and Bahrain. So that's, that's kind of interesting. That can't be right, though, can it? Is that right? I, I don't know. Apparently, that's he says that this is what the Phoenicians themselves claimed. So who knows? I don't know. But uh, Dominic, another of my favorite uh, classical writers is the first person to actually give us the name of Qatar. So can you Am guess I who that is? Thinking? Can I guess that it's Pliny the Elder, Tom? I it know is you Pliny, Pliny the Elder. Elder. Pliny the Elder. Yes, absolutely it is. So very much friend of the show. And he's um, he's tracking uh, all the, the various peoples who live along the Gulf. And he he's, he talks of the Nacheti, the Zarazi, the Borgodi, and the Cathare. Ooh, so the Cathare are the Qataris. The Qataris, presumably. yeah. What happened and to the Borgodi or whatever? Who knows? Who knows where they went? And and he clearly sees it as a place of of uh, of wealth and legend. So this is he's obsessed by pearls. So he's very alert to the fact that, that pearls can be sourced from here. He describes towns built from square blocks of salt. Uh, he describes tribes of ichthyophagi, which are fish eaters. Uh, he describes the Gulf as being prey to whirlpools. Um, so it's a place of of wealth of mystique and of danger uh, and that's yeah. very much the kind of the roman sense of it uh, ptolemy the great geographer uh, he produces a map that shows um a place called katura which is obviously qatar as well they're talking about the same place so the romans are aware of it of course the romans themselves aren't ruling it uh the parthians rule it uh the sasanians rule it and then it comes under the rule of the the arabs uh, the Umayyad dynasty the first muslim dynasty um and it becomes uh, a muslim territory a uh, Muslim land. Right. But the numbers living there, Tom, must be pretty small. I mean, it's very yeah, nice, it is. isn't it? It is, but it, it, it serves a useful purpose because um, you've got in Basra, which is the port in um, uh, the south of Mesopotamia, south of Iraq, which becomes the great port for uh, ships that are servicing Baghdad, uh, you know, in the, the heyday of the Abbasids, yeah. the dynasty that succeed the Umayyads. Um, and they're sailing up the Gulf out into the Indian Ocean, uh, sailing all kinds of, you know, to India, to 
Ceylon to Malaysia to or, across the across the uh, the Indian Ocean and the Pacific, and uh, essentially Qatar provides a way stop, a readily defensible way stop along the way. So it's the kind of place that you can imagine Sinbad stopping. Oh yes, absolutely. With all the pearls and stuff, I mean, perfect. It's perfect sort of Arabian Nights territory, isn't it? Exactly. So there are pearls. Uh, it becomes famous for its horses and for its camels. So it's breeding them. And I think a measure of the way in which even in, you know, the eighth or the ninth centuries, it's taking on a kind of a role as a, as a hub, a global hub, is that um, a fort is, forts are built then and they're using a style of, of, of masonry that seems to derive from China. So, oh. you know, it's, there's, a, a, there's a hint of the Tang dynasty in, uh, in, in Qatar, which is very interesting. So it must be part of a trade network that goes all Completely, the way. Completely, yes. Uh, to the, th- uh, via the Silk Roads, I suppose, all the way to China. Yeah, absolutely. All and by there, sea. Are, the, all by sea. All, all by sea. Yes, it's all by sea. And so there, there are also kind of traces of trade with Africa, with Malaysia, with Thailand, um, gold, silver, spices, all this kind of stuff um, that basically the Arabs are controlling. So they are the the, yeah. the 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 local superpower, and they are controlling. They've got access to all the wealth of the of the Far East, um, and to the degree that it's reaching Europe, it's having to go through them. And the Europeans resent this, or more particularly, the Portuguese come to resent this because, of course, there are certain ah, Europeans who profit from this. So the Venetians, you know, they, they they profit from it, but the Portuguese stuck out uh, facing the Atlantic, very very peripheral power, and of course, the Portuguese very much friends of the show because we did four episodes on them. And we talked about how um, first Henry the Navigator and then King Manuel sent ships going down the, 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 the side of Africa, down to the Cape of Good Hope, back up as far as India. Um, and the ambition of the Portuguese was firstly to bypass the Muslim control of these trade routes, and secondly to basically to destroy Islam. I mean, that was their goal. Yeah. And so the Portuguese make a systematic attempt essentially to take over these trade routes and so under uh, the command of Albuquerque, this extraordinary figure who it becomes the second viceroy of India um, and who commands the kind of imperial expansion of Portugal, basically, I mean, across vast sweeps of the world, he seizes both uh, Qatar and Bahrain um, and he makes Portuguese uh, forts out of them. But then in turn, in our, uh, our episodes on Portugal, we talked about how the path that is blazed by the Portuguese then gets followed first by the Dutch and then by the English. And sure oh, enough, yes. Qatar then comes under first the Dutch and then the English. So they establish posts there. Um, at the same time, you've got the Ottomans expanding southwards. So it also comes under Ottoman influence. So it's essentially, there's a kind of, it's simultaneously looking at to the degree that it's looking out to the seas and playing this role of a kind of way stop on these global trade routes. It's under European influence. But to the degree that it's under the thumb of a kind of local hegemon, it's under Ottoman influence. And right. yeah. this is a kind of tension within Qatari history that really runs right the way through the, from the early modern period through the modern period. Um, and what role is there for, for the locals? And really, there isn't one up until the late 17th century, um, when in 1670, um, a, a consortium, a kind of confederation of Arab tribes with the very, very dune name of the bani khalid they expel <laughs> the ottomans um yeah 
And this is a confederation that it, it includes Qatar, but it kind of runs up the, the coast of Eastern Arabia to Southern Iraq. And so they, they establish a kind of loose confederation, keeping both the, uh, the, the Ottomans and the Europeans at a kind of remove, although inevitably they have to have some accommodation with them. And then in 1783, so that's basically a kind of a century after the, uh, the Bani Khalid have, have taken control, there's a further fracturing when um, the House of Khalifa take over the Kingdom of Bahrain. And the House of Khalifa also sees control of Qatar. And the House of Khalifa are in a kind of seesaw contest with a new and aggressive tribal confederation that has emerged in in Arabia, who are called the Wahhabis. Ah, now that's going to be a big theme, isn't it? Yes. So the Wahhabis are very, I, I guess you would call them, the, they're the kind of the ancestors of what today we might call radical Islam. They are very ascetic. Uh, you could almost say puritanical. I mean, that's pro- possibly not the right word, but they are very doctrinaire uh, in their, their practice of Islam. And they're coming from the depths of the desert, whereas the people on the coast, so the Qataris, inevitably are more cosmopolitan. They're more open to foreign influences. Yeah. They have both so the there's Ottoman actually air. some really interesting themes there. One of them is... Um, the extent to which Qatar is a sort of plaything, I suppose, for foreign powers or an important, uh, merely they see it as a, as a node on their trading network. And then you've also got kind of local chieftains and clans trying yeah. to play off the foreign powers. But then you've also got the tension between the desert and the, the coast, I suppose, don't you? Yes. So they, these are themes that will, that, that are always there. And the Wahhabis can draw on on such reserves, and they're so kind of uh, aflame with a sense of their own mission that um, the Al Khalifa dynasty have to look for overseas help. And so, obviously, they turn to the Ottomans. They also turn to the um, the kind of sub Ottoman dynasty that's emerged in Egypt. Um, and absolutely, you get this sense, you know, this complete awareness from the. The, the, the dynasty that rules Qatar and Bahrain, that the only way it can survive is by allying itself with the local great powers. And so that's what it does. But meanwhile, of course, moving into the 19th century, um, this is the period of growing British influence. So the English have been keen participants in, uh, in these trade routes for a long time. But by the 19th century, the East India Company is the dominant power in India and seizing control of uh, the shipping lanes that run from Britain to India is obviously of absolutely fundamental importance. And yeah. an ability for, for British shipping to sail undisturbed by pirates is absolutely key. And so and in 1820, the, the East India Company uh, signs a treaty with, or perhaps forces uh, a, a treaty on all the various sheikhs along the Gulf, um, which has as its focus the ending of piracy and also, interestingly, the slave trade. So 1820s, we're into the period where uh, abolitionism is becoming yeah. um, an absolute motor of British foreign policy. This is the period when the Royal Navy is starting to patrol the Atlantic, trying to stop the slave trade um, going from Africa to, uh, to, to, to the Americas. Um, Tom, this, is the, um, this is where you get that phrase, is it the, tru- the trucial coast? Yeah. So the, the yes. coast with which we've signed a series of truces, I suppose, or, or treaties. Yes, exactly. So we, I think we, um, in our episodes in Portugal, we talked about the, the Portuguese had a, or was it the Brazilians had a phrase, uh, this is a law to be looked at by the British. Uh, oh yes, you know, the Brazilians, exactly. The, yes. the Brazilians. A law for the British to see. That was it, yes. Wasn't it? So, so I think that that's essentially what these various, um, 
you know, shakedoms along the Gulf have, they they have, you know, they've officially they've signed an anti-slavery uh, law. Um, they probably don't have the slave market directly opposite the British ambassador's residence, <laughs> but yeah. but it's it's still going on. And to, and to be honest, the British are not in a position to uh, to enforce it, and it's not really in their interest to do it. So it, it's you know everyone's kind of happy. Um, the British right. can feel that they've done their bit to, to stop the slave trade. The sheikhs get their treaty with Britain; they get their protection, uh, and and they can still do that. They can still trade in slaves. So that's kind of basically the state of play through the nineteenth century. But specifically, what happens in Qatar in eighteen sixty seven is that um, just as the Al Khalifa family had uh, branched off from the, uh, the the Bani Khalid, this alliance of various kind of Arab states, so in eighteen sixty seven you have Qatar staking a claim for independence, or more specifically, you have a, a, another dynasty, the Al Thani family, declaring that they are independent of the uh, of the Al Khalifa dynasty uh, and setting up as a kind of sub-sheikdom in Qatar. And there's a, a, the war lasts for two years. Um, it, it gets settled by the British, who... Uh, basically force the the Al Khalifa family to accept that Qatar has a kind of shadowy independence. They force the Al Thani family to accept a measure of sovereignty from the from the Al Khalifa dynasty. Um, and from that point on the Al Thani family are British clients. So they entirely so the, so depend on British support to uphold the degree of independence that they, they that they have. So the Al Thani's are running Qatar and the Al am I right in thinking the Al Khalifas are running Bahrain? Is that basically yes, the, yes. the divide? It, yes. So there's a huge. I had never, uh, I had never um, realized the extent to which there's this long history of sort of animosity and rivalry yes. between yes. Bahrain, which is an island, yeah. and Qatar, which is a peninsula. Well, yes, but also, I mean, no, there've been long periods. So, so under the Al Khalifa dynasty, initially, they are ruling. They're, they're ruling Qatar. I mean, you know, there, there is a kind of natural synergy there, and to this yeah. day, of course, they're still. You know, they, they get bundled together very, very naturally, um, yes. and you know th- these these dynasties put down very deep roots. So the the Al Khalifa family still rule Bahrain, and the Al Thani family are still the, very much the uh, the big cheeses in Qatar. So right, um, so so Britain is really the midwife of of both those dynasties. Yeah. You know, they're ensuring that they stay in place because, of course, throughout the nineteenth century, as in previous centuries, there are predatory great powers lurking along, you know, beyond the borders. So the Ottomans come back uh, and they retreat again. Uh, there's always a threat from from the depths of Arabia. The Wahhabis are still very much a presence. Um, and it, it's not until 1916, so in the middle of the of the First World War, that Qatar becomes officially a British protectorate. Um, and just before we take a break, Tom, uh, Qatar at this point is, it, I mean, it's still reliant on what? I mean, Pearls, pearls, trade, a little bit pearls of trade. And trade, pearls and trade. Yeah. So, that, so basically, there are there are very few people who live there. I mean, very, very few. Yeah. There, it's there are no major settlements really, um, yeah. and to the degree that there are settlements, they are way stops for uh, ships going up up the Gulf and back again. And and that is its that is its role. I mean, you know, it has no greater salience than that. And then, of course, everything changes, doesn't it? And we should probably take a break now, Tom, and then uh, come back with this extraordinary transformation in Qatar's fortunes, without which they wouldn't now be hosting the World Cup. They definitely um, would We'll not. come back to that after the break. 
This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up is never a good idea. It can have terrible consequences. For instance, look at all the conflicts throughout history. I wonder how many of them could have been solved if they just talked things out. And Tom, I have a confession for our listeners. As you know, I've been really struggling with anxiety about the massive series that we've got coming on The Rest is History, all the prep we have to do for that series on the French Revolution, the First World War. I mean, it's all mounting up, isn't it? And when we talked it out, I felt so much better now that I got all those crippling anxieties and insecurities off my chest. If you want to talk, you can always talk to me. But if not, then I highly recommend therapy. It can help you learn positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. It empowers you, Dominic, to be the best version of yourself. If you want to give therapy a try, why not check out BetterHelp? It's entirely online, it's convenient and flexible, and it's really easy to get started. You just fill out a brief questionnaire and they'll match you with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash rest is history today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash rest is history. Welcome back to The Rest is History. We are delving deep into the history of Qatar. We've reached 1916, and uh, Qatar has formally become a British protectorate. So the Qataris have given up their autonomy in foreign affairs, and and they can't um, make treaties or do anything like that. But the British will let them run their own domestic affairs, won't they? Yeah, I think the British are really reluctant to get involved, you know, in anything approximating to domestic affairs. It's... So, so again, everyone is basically happy. Um, the Qataris can do what they like. Uh, the British can ensure that it doesn't fall into the hands, say, of, of the Ottomans who are enemy competence in 1916 when this this relationship is is officially established. Um, and uh, yeah, every, everyone's happy basically. Um, but as we said before the break, Qatar is really, I mean, it's it's a nothing place. It's kind of Hicksville. Um, but then, as you as you hinted, everything changes because. Just before the Second World War, they strike oil, and um, it is discovered that Qatar, <laughs> this flea-bitten nowhere place, uh, has control of the third highest reserves of natural gas and oil in the world. And this is the um, it's the Anglo-Persian oil company, isn't it? That gets the first uh, yes. gets the first concession. That's basically the ancestor of BP. Yes, I think it's fair to say. Yes, and and so as late as the nineteen fifties. Um, the Qataris remember that decade as, as the years of hunger because they are not benefiting from this at all. Um, it's it's still very much uh, Western oil companies that are profiting from it. Um, but that obviously changes. It starts to change in the 60s and definitely changes in the 70s. And what happens in the 70s is, first of all, um, in the late 60s, as you will know better than me, uh, the British decide that they can no longer afford to offer protection to these various uh, Gulf protectorates east of Suez. Yes. So they, they're and this pulling is, back. That, and, that, and that actually was a massive... So Philip Larkin wrote a poem about this, didn't he? Yes, he did, didn't um, he? The statues will still stand the same in squares, but we are a country yeah. that pulled back our navies because we had no money or something. Because we like had no money, yeah. exactly. Uh, and, and uh, I mean, we'd actually ended up fighting a sort of rearguard action in Aden in the late 1960s. And I think it's fair to say the British were very keen to just basically yeah. get out get, of this. Get out of You know, as long as they could, as long as we could preserve our economic interests. I mean, we had no interest in leaving bases and all these kinds of things. Yeah. And 
this this is actually you know the qataris don't welcome this at all they 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 needed the the protection that the royal navy had provided um and so they're aware that they're going to have to forge a, a, an entirely new a kind of you know a new relationship to the broader world both the world in general of which they're now going to be an integral part because they have oil um but also obviously the the, the near their near neighborhood where there are numerous large powers of which Iran and Saudi Arabia are the two the two largest and the most predatory um and um it, it, so Qatar becomes officially independent in 1971 and it's uh a year later that one of the great themes of Qatari history kicks in which is rulers of Qatar going on holiday and everything oh. coming unstuck I think one of the lessons of the entire Rest is History podcast series has been that if you're the ruler of a country, you must never, ever go on holiday because terrible things will follow. Yes. So the, the, the man who does not who, who has not mastered this lesson is Ahmed bin Ali Al Thani, who is the ruler of, of Qatar. And he's always going on holiday. He absolutely loves a holiday. Um, and... So much so that he actually issues the formal announcement of Qatar's uh, independence, not in Qatar, but from his villa in Switzerland. <laughs> which, that's that's which true I think, <laughs> patriotic dedication. Yeah, it really is. It, it really is. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, it, even among uh, even among the um, the Althani dynasty, who who by this point are kind of starting to get into the whole idea of foreign holidays now that the oil money is flowing in, this is seen as pretty poor behaviour. Uh, and it, it, it blots his copybook. And the following year, he goes on holiday again. So he goes to Iran for a hunting trip. And while he's on holiday, he's deposed by his cousin, a man called Khalifa bin Hamid. Uh, and it's a completely uh, bloodless coup. So uh, Ahmed goes to, I think he goes to Dubai. Uh, he ends up dying in London. And uh, Khalifa bin Hamid, he, he, he takes over Qatar. And it's under him that you have the OPEC crisis, uh, the oil crisis, uh, so boom times for for anyone who has controls a third, you know, the third largest reserves of oil and gas, and it's all great. And suddenly, Doha, from being a sleepy village, uh, kind of occupied by pearl fishers, becomes this I- increasingly large and significant hub where oil ministers from Western countries are constantly jetting in and looking polite. Though, and yes, exactly. Yes, exactly. Meanwhile, of course. If you are, you know, if if you're the ruler of, say, you know, a few hundred thousand people, and you control the third largest oil and gas reserves in the world, that is a bit like being, you know, kind of walking down a very dark alley with a large quantity of diamonds sticking out of your back pocket. I mean, it's kind of asking for trouble. And so, Khalifa bin Hamid's solution to this problem is basically to suck up. All he can to Saudi Arabia, so oh, to the Saudis. He completely right. sucks up to the Saudis. I mean, the Saudis are, are the, the you know they're on his literally on his doorstep. They're vast. They're incredibly rich. They have even more oil and gas than uh, than than the Qataris does. And so Qatar's relationship to um, Saudi Arabia pretty much replicates what had previously been its um, relationship to Britain. So the Saudis essentially keep out of Qatari internal affairs. And they're happy to do that because uh, Qatar has um, Sharia law. It's, you know, there's nothing going on there that would be particularly offensive to the Saudis. Um, But the Saudis run their foreign policy. And this lasts 
throughout the 70s, throughout the 80s, uh, through the first half of the 90s. And then in 1995, Dominic, Khalifa bin Hamid makes a fatal mistake. Don't tell me he goes on holiday, Tom. Schoolboy. He, he, he goes on holiday and he goes on holiday to Switzerland again. Oh, no. Have they not learned their lesson? A terrible, terrible mistake. And he gets deposed again in a bloodless coup, this time not by his cousin, but by his son, Hamad. Oh, that's very medieval, isn't it? Very. It's very so much of the Lionheart and uh, Henry II. So Hamad, Hamad is uh, he's very much a military man. So he went to Sandhurst, I'm proud to say. So right, uh, the yeah. British Military Training College. Yeah. Uh, he becomes the Army Chief of Staff, and then he becomes the Defence Minister. Uh, and this is essentially what enables him to stage the coup. So hold on. Am I right in saying, Tom, and I think I've got this right, that Khalifa bin Hamad has been toppled by Hamad bin Khalifa? Correct. Yes. Crikey. Well, don't get those two mixed up. I mean, that could be Well, because serious. bin means son of. Of course. Yeah. So, yes. Of course. It, yes, it, so, it, it, um, it is confusing. Yes, it so is. So Hamad bin Khalifa is now the big man. And so let's call him Hamad. Hamad. Yeah. Yeah, so Khalifa bin Hamid, yes. So he moves to France and then he comes back to Qatar, I think, in 2004 or something like that. And then he dies maybe a decade later. So so basically, I mean, this is, yeah, on one level, as you say, it's all quite medieval. But on another, it's, I mean, you know, there are worse things than retiring to oh, France. Yeah. And yes. I mean, you know, it's... It, Presumably it, it, with an enormous amount of money. I mean, yeah, enormous like amount. Yes. So, yeah, I, th- I think, I think you know, it's it's there are worse things that could happen. Anyway, so Hamad is a very, very um, ambitious man, and he has very, very big plans for Qatar. And these plans do not involve being a Saudi lickspittle. Um, he wants to make Qatar essentially into such a, a geopolitical big beast that the Saudis won't be able to keep uh, Qatar under, under their thumb. Right. And obviously this is I mean this is a very very startling ambition considering how small Qatar is, how vulnerable it is and how large Saudi Arabia is. And so the spectacle of of Hamed um setting out to establish a completely independent foreign policy is very very alarming to the Saudis and also actually quite alarming to 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 its other neighbors as well. And so it's a very very bold policy. And it it's essentially astonishing that, that he's pulled it off. And the fact that the World Cup is going on in Qatar is in a way the kind of the cherry on the cake of his success. So it's, it's an astonishing, astonishing feat. Well, I mean, what, I think one of the great feats of recent geopolitics. So Tom, Al Jazeera, the, Correct. Um, Absolutely. the media network is part of that story, isn't it? It because is. Presumably so this is part of his project. Yeah. So, so the question is, how does he do this? How does he, how does he make this, fabulously rich i mean there's no the, the wealth is the given but even so if you only have kind of 300,000 people and no real army and you're next to saudi arabia and you want to strike out on a novel course how do you do this how do you how do you exploit your wealth so there are numbers of ways in which he does it he he basically he sets out to make qatar the kind of the center of gravity for the whole of the arab world that's that's his aim. And he does it in all kinds of ways. So he he sets education is an obvious one. So he sets up this this kind of incredible complex called Education City. Uh all the um the water 
jets are, are keeping the manicured lawns absolutely green and exquisite. He invites uh, Americans, British, French to set up a kind of sub departments of their own universities there. So it becomes a great educational hub. He uh, he establishes Doha as a transport hub. So you know planes from across the world. It becomes a, a I think one of the largest transport hubs in the in the entire world. Uh, and then, as you say, he possibly the most kind of decisive step that he takes and and one that really shows a kind of understanding of how the world is going to work kind of ahead of a, a lot of people is that he sets up this new service called Al Jazeera which is initially Arab language then English and then various other languages designed to be a kind of um, an Arab CNN so an inter- uh, an international news service and he does this it's pre-internet and so the the effect of this essentially is that it enables Qatar to seize control of the news agenda across the near the Middle East, wherever Arabic is spoken as the main language. It is Al Jazeera that is that is setting the agenda. That is a huge, huge source of power. I think the assumption is is that by kind of raising the profile of Qatar by establishing you know Al Jazeera as the equivalent of CNN or or the BBC, um, it will give it a global brand that that in turn will ensure that Qatar can't just be snuffed out. Right. Because it will have a kind of global resonance. Yes. So people will have heard of it. Everybody will know about it. And you can't just suddenly send in your troops and crush it because it'll be a big story, which it wouldn't be if no one had heard of Qatar. Exactly. So the the question is, does this work? There are definitely downsides to it because I think think that Hamad's assumption was that making Qatar a center of world attention would only be good. But obviously it isn't only good because the more that attention is paid to Qatar, the more people are aware of problems with it that uh, the Qatari government might want to sweep under the carpet. So it's got the World Cup. It's the center of world attention. Here we are doing an episode about it. Uh, Qatar is all over the, you know, I mean, it's it, people will be watching um, the, 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 the football from Qatar across the globe. but. The process by which Qatar got the World Cup and the way in which its stadia were built has brought a lot of very, very negative publicity. So it's focused attention on on corruption, on boat rigging, on bribery, um, and perhaps particularly on the kind of the human rights offences. So uh, Qatar, you know, has this very small native population. It's entirely dependent for uh, large infrastructure projects on migrant labour. And there've been all kinds of stories, reports saying that basically this is a kind of modern form of slavery. That, right, Indians, that, Nepalese, and so yeah, on. That they're brought may, over. They been, have their passports taken away, uh, yeah. and essentially, if they complain, they you know they they have no recourse at all. So that, sort of so working in horrendous conditions, and I mean, you know, if some stories are to be believed, quite a high death toll. Absolutely, and so that hasn't redounded entirely to um, to its credit. The other the other problem that it has is that um, the, on the on the Al Jazeera theme is that. Again, it doesn't entirely redound. It's not entirely a positive. Because if you're controlling the news agenda, then again, that that makes you an object of criticism. So, you know, CNN is criticised. Fox News is criticised. The BBC is criticised because precisely because they have the reach that they do, because they have the kind of reputation that they do. Therefore, if people feel that they're not accommodating themselves to their own political perspectives, then they come to hate them. And much the same thing happens with Al Jazeera, and particularly because Qatar deliberately sets out to um, to be friends essentially with everyone. So the classic example of this is that you know it, it invites Hamas 
to come and, and talk, but at the same time, it's playing host to Israeli trade delegations. And this, you know, it doesn't go down well with radical Muslim opinion. And Tom, what about the um, the Arab Spring? So the Arab Spring starts in what, 2010 or so? Yes, exactly. So so prior to the Arab Spring, among the, among those Arab states that regard any contact with Israel, the fact that it's prepared to sup, even with a long spoon with trade delegations, it's not entirely a positive from, from the Arab point of view. And it's seen as, as too accommodating to Israel. But then with the Arab Spring, you, you get criticism from the other side, which is that it's an ally of, of uh, Islamic terrorism, of Muslim terrorism. Because what, what happens in the Arab Spring is that Al Jazeera is not just, uh, it's, it's not just a kind of objective reporter. It's absolutely a player. Um, and spreading news, spreading, spreading news, all exactly, that stuff. Yeah. exactly. And, and particularly what, what, what the Qataris do, and therefore Al Jazeera, which is under the Qatari thumb, is that they back the Muslim Brotherhood. And the Muslim Brotherhood are, well, they're, they're condemned. So it's all very complicated. I mean, they're quite a kind of venerable organization. Their origins lie in Egypt. Um, and so the Muslim Brotherhood come to power in Tunisia, and they come to power in Egypt. And more specifically in Egypt. And I say specifically because Egypt is, um, you know, it's one of the, the kind of the great political and cultural centers of, of the Arab world, much more than yeah. Tunisia. And um, there's a lot of nervousness from the Saudis, from the Americans, um, from, uh, from basically from any, from, from anyone in the Arab world who has suspicions of the Muslim Brotherhood. And, and basically that's everyone in power. <laughs> yeah. um, so, the Muslim Brotherhood come to power in Egypt under the uh, under the, the rule of a guy called Morsi, and he very rapidly gets toppled. And the Saudis accuse the Qataris of backing terrorism. And you may feel that that is a pot calling a kettle black, and, and you'd be right to do so. But hypocrisy is, you know, is very much a feature of politics in the Middle East, and um, it doesn't stop. So Saudi, United Arab Emirates, Bahrain. Qatar's near neighbor, and in due course, Egypt, from first of all, recalling their ambassadors to Qatar, uh, and then severing all ties with Qatar and closing all transport links with Qatar. Yeah, they tried to blockade Qatar, yeah. didn't they? So they, they, um, they, they, they blockade it. This is um, what, 2017 or so? Yes. Done, Trump piles in. Uh, he's very much on the side of the Saudis, inevitably. Uh, and a resolution isn't brokered until 2021. And Crikey, that's under, only last year. Yeah. yeah. And that, that is under the aegis of, of, the, of the, U, the US and Kuwait. Uh, and Trump very much claims the credit for it. <laughs> <laughs> but of course. Of course. Uh, so he says it was all him. So, you know, there, 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 obviously there are kind of dangers for Qatar in this path. I mean, it, it hasn't been, you know, entirely without. And also the fact that it's, 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 it has very good relations with Iran as well. So that's about also, to say there's a, there's a colossal superpower not super is the right the wrong word kind of regional great, power yeah regional great power rivalry isn't there between yeah. saudi arabia and iran and qatar is trying to play them off and, yeah and find but, its but, but it that. may well be that uh you know that it's bust up with the saudis actually boosted its relations with iran and uh, the, the counter view to this is that actually you know there are upsides to it as well that it that that it hasn't all been down because otherwise they wouldn't be adopting this policy and it wouldn't have been so successful so mm-hmm. The, the, uh, Qatar does have a kind of channel of communication to Iran, for instance. So that, that is something that can be activated if, if needs be. And it has definitely played a, a pretty positive role in certain regional conflicts. So in Lebanon, for instance, it has served to, it, it's helped out. It's been an honest broker. And there was this, uh, you know, you, you see banners in Lebanon saying, thank you, Qatar. So it, it, 
it's not entirely uh it's not it's not all been bad so so i mean in a sense with al jazeera um the qataris have slightly been riding a tiger uh it you know it's it's definitely raised their profile it's definitely given them power but that power is quite a treacherous thing and it in on its own i think it would be insufficient to to secure their independence. And this was something that was very, very much brought home to the Qataris. And in fact, it may well have played a crucial role in uh, in, in the deposition of Hamad's father, which was the invasion of Kuwait by Saddam Hussein, because it really brought home to all, everyone along the line of the Gulf that they needed military protection and they needed kind of, you know, they needed more a, a more solid bulwark than, um, than even Al Jazeera could provide. And so basically they have... They've adopted two policies to ensure that they have great power protection. The first of those is economic. So they have this vast sovereign wealth fund and they've invested. They, they, they own the Shard, for instance, in, in London, London's tallest building. They own Paris Saint-Germain. So that's, uh, you know, another football. The ultimate investment. plastic football team. Tom. Um, various, uh, various German car companies. So um, th- they've invested in iconic properties investments within individual Western countries that helps to raise their profile. But also, of course, what they have done with their their reserves of liquefied natural gas is that they have supplied it to to the UK. The UK has been drawing on 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 natural gas from Qatar, relying on its kind of, you know, its its long-term relationship with Qatar. And that's something that obviously is Yeah, very timely. But also to that they've also been supplying um uh liquefied natural gas to China, to Japan, to, uh, to to all kinds of countries that will therefore have a stake in upholding its independence. And the other thing that they have done is from 1996 onwards, they started building um, a huge air base at a place called Al-Yadaid, a vast, vast air base. And it was very much a kind of come hither, <laughs> you know, wiggling of the right. bottom towards the United States uh, because they knew the United States, you know, its air force needs it. It needs a base. Um, it had previously been in Saudi Arabia, obviously relations between the United States and Saudi Arabia because of 9-11 and in due course and everything. Very, very rocky. And so the US moves its air base to um, Al-Yadaid and it's actually, it's the largest overseas, US overseas air base anywhere in the world. So you would um, think that would be the ultimate base- protection, I suppose, wouldn't you? Well, it's a base, and, and, and the RAF are stationed there as yeah. well. Other other Western Air Force, the the US have ten thousand troops there. Uh, it's it's a regional command, so that is really the kind of yeah the underpinning of uh, Qatari independence. They ha- they they have they're, they're indispensable to the global economy, and absolutely at the moment. I mean, you know, it's kind of it's such an odd coincidence that the World Cup should be going on at the same time as its supplies of, of liquefied natural gas to the world is, you know, essentially keeping the global economy ticking. So as I say, I think that Qatar is, re- I mean, it's a, a really astonishing state. It's it's played all the kind of the various elements of late 20th and early uh, early 21st century politics very, very cleverly. And Unless it had done so, it simply wouldn't be in the position that it is today of hosting the World Cup. But Tom, you wonder whether the World Cup will be a blessing or a curse for Qatar, because of course, as you said earlier, the World Cup has brought a level of scrutiny that it's never had before. So there's two ways of looking at that. One is to say, well, let's look back to when Russia had the World Cup in 2018. Um, Actually, 
you know, Vladimir Putin was able to kind of get away scot-free. Everybody actually turned up and said, oh, Russia's lovely, you know, and nobody talked about human rights or any of these kinds of things. And, and any sort of criticism was kind of drowned out by excitement at, at the organization of the tournament and the the spectacle and all that stuff. On the other hand, there has already been quite sort of bad publicity for Qatar with the, the deaths of migrant workers, with the environmental costs of playing the tournament in somewhere that's so hot. Um, so, well, and also, I think, I mean, don't you think, I mean, among football fans who will obviously be the people who will be mo- paying closest attention yeah. to it, a feeling that this is a country without any football culture, really. Yeah. Um, and it's in the middle of the, <laughs> the European season. Yes, I mean, it's, it, it feels... Lots of people are mildly resentful I, of it. I mean, that's not a sort of sense, factor, isn't it? But I think it's a sporting tournament. I mean, uh, uh, that's been bought. That's been bought and won, unlike... It's a, rich, it's a rich man's toy. Of course, all sporting tournaments are like that. And the World Cup has always had... You know, it's political dark side in Argentina in 1978, for example. Well, we discussed we that. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah. Um, this does feel like – well, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. You know, if, if the tournament uh, – I, I sort of think if the tournament passes off triumphantly and everybody says it was brilliantly organized and they had a whale of a time and it was a fantastic sporting spectacle, then the the truth, unwelcome as it may be, will probably be that a lot of the criticism just dies down. Don't you think? I mean, that's what happened in Russia in 2018. Yeah. I mean, I think <sighs> – I mean, ultimately, Qatar's security doesn't depend on Western public opinion. Doesn't really matter. It's it's definitely useful. Yeah. I mean, it helps. It helps that um, you know people in the West associate it with prosperity, with wealth, with progress, with bling, with nice things, with uh, you know uh, fancy island developments, all that kind of stuff. I mean, it does help. And therefore, the World Cup, you know, a successful World Cup will obviously do a huge amount to raise its profile. But ultimately, you know, the, the, the basis of Qatar's security remains that American air base yeah. and the need that the world has, yeah. particularly over this winter, for the, um, for the gas that it can supply. I think that's all true. Um, that's all true. But that, all of that said, I think a few, future historians will undoubtedly mention this. The fact that because it's the most extraordinary symbol, isn't it, of the sort of changing balance of economic and political power in the world, that the World Cup is now being held in a country like Qatar, which would have been inconceivable even 40 or 50 years ago. And you you could. Well, I I mean, I think I yeah, I I think it serves as um, a kind of unsettling emblem of the modern economy where you, you do have this tiny minority of Qataris. You have, you know, a subsection of Western expats, and then you have a kind of vast heritage, uh, kind of s- almost slaves laboring beneath them, which I get, you know, you could say is a, you know, that's the way the global economy is organized now. And all, you know, and, and, and with the, um, the current energy crisis, you know, the, the sense that the whole thing is, so fundamental to the functioning of the global economy you know it's not just a, a kind of uh, you know a, a, a peripheral sideshow i mean this is really central to to keeping our lights on over the winter you know all kinds of things so there's a lot to reflect on but before we end tom um and and by the way that was um as you would say that was an absolute tour de force i can't thank you enough oh, it, um, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but tom we should say a little bit about the next uh few weeks for us because not only will you and i be watching the football but also we will be releasing podcasts every day so that we get through the 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 32 
well, 31 left, aren't there? Because we've done Qatar. There are 31 more countries to go. And with those 31 countries, we won't be focusing, we won't be doing potted histories. We'll be focusing on individual aspects. So do you want to give us a couple of highlights of your highlights of the weeks ahead? I, th- I think what's been wonderful about doing these is that we've been able to fix on aspects of various, you know, various aspects of, of, of history and perhaps particularly, uh, regions of the world that we otherwise perhaps wouldn't have, have looked at and come up with some really extraordinary episodes, events, characters. Um, and I've certainly learned a huge amount. So what have I learned? I've learned about, I've learned more than I ever knew about Russia's most famous Cameroonian 18th century general. I mean, from a huge pool of that, I mean, Tom. <laughs> obviously there are lots of them, but, uh, astonishing story. Um, and I've learned that Costa Rica, I, I literally knew nothing about the history of Costa Rica. I've learned that, um, a really remark, a, a really remarkable story, which I thoroughly commend to listeners who, who may think Costa Rican history, I'm not interested in that. You will be. Listen to it. And yourself. Uh, I enjoyed listening to you talking about Dido, the great Carthaginian queen, um, and whether or not she did exist. Uh, so that's for Tunisia. Yes, that, I like it. I enjoyed hearing you were very good on the Ashanti Wars in the history of Ghana. Uh, and, but my favorite, and the, if there's one podcast I think people should listen to, it's the podcast about Australia. Um, and the story of Somerton Man, which is, I mean, basically the best murder mystery story I think I've ever heard. So people have got that to, it is to, brilliant, to look isn't forward it? to. Yeah. So lots to come. Uh, and uh, I just hope that you don't get bored of our voices. Tom, I don't believe anyone. No one could possibly get bored, I think. Um, so enjoy the World Cup. Enjoy the rest is history's World Cup extravaganza. And we will see you soon. Goodbye. Very soon. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com.